Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagro Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And our program today is sponsored by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense, HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Joining us today for his first conversation with us in 2023 is my dear friend, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners to take a look at the year as well as the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, uh, welcome back to the program and happy new year and hope you and yours had uh, great holidays. A belated happy new year and it already feels like a year into the new year, Vago. <laughs> Indeed, it's it's been sporty, uh, a sporty start to the new year, certainly politically, and we're going to get to that uh, in just a minute. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and HII, our naval coverage. And HII and GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, are sponsoring our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium that uh, that gets started uh, tomorrow and lasts uh, through uh, Thursday. Uh, and over the coming uh, days, we're going to be talking to HII uh, CEO uh, Chris Kastner, as well as uh, Vice Admiral Bill Galinas, uh, who is the commander of the U.S. Uh, Navy Sea Systems Command. And also tune in to the Cavus Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, uh, who are going to be going daily uh, with the podcast in order to give deeper and more granular uh, coverage of uh, the surface navies uh, and one of the Navy's most important uh, trade shows. And I should also point out that we are an SNA uh, media partner as well. Uh, Byron, um, a lot uh, to discuss. Um, we've got a new House Speaker. Uh, we heard from Michael Herson uh, of American Defense International, uh, part of our uh, Friday roundtable. Uh, he joined us again yesterday for the business uh, roundtable to give us an update because before between uh, Friday and Saturday, Kevin McCarthy became uh, the California Republican, became the nation's 53rd House Speaker, but had to make quite a lot of concessions and promises uh, to the hard right uh, faction uh, in the House, uh, including $75 billion in discretionary spending cuts, uh, debt um, uh, you know, limitations, uh, all of which is not expected to augur uh, well uh, for uh, defense and certainly looking like a year-long continuing resolution. From your standpoint, what is it that's been going on uh, that you think sets the stage and what kind of a stage does it set for the coming year? Well, Vago, I may be a little bit more sanguine on the budget outlook. Absolutely agree. I think it's going to be a tough slog. I think we knew that, you know, that the moment we saw the outcome of the midterm election, split party control was going to create issues in terms of getting appropriations bills through in a timely manner. And I think that's, you know, one of the saving graces of late last year was at least we got the FY23 omnibus bill done. Um, for 2024, you know, uh, some of the reporting I've seen was, you know, it's not just a defense cut, it's $130 billion discretionary spending cut. If you roll FY24 back to FY22, 
that's a very big lift in my view. Um, you know, if you just look in, in the president's plan that was submitted last March, you add the DOD budget to the Veterans Affairs budget. Um, there's a good slug of that that's also um, in discretionary spending. That's almost $996 billion in that FY24 plan. So talking about making cuts, if you're going to protect veterans and you're going to protect the national, uh, national defense budget, um, you know, you're not, you can't gut the rest of non-defense discretionary spending without getting, I think, some very significant pushback um, from people in the United States who benefit from that. So, uh, and I'm also, the idea that you're going to cut defense spending in an environment where we've got a major war in Europe going on, we've seen no relaxation or indication that China is any less of a military threat. Um, you have Iran and, uh, you know, still not clear. At, no, no, there's no path to getting the United States back into the JCPOA, and, and that's still an uncertainty, as well as a whole range of other uncertainties in a global security environment. So the idea that we're just going to somehow cut um, discretionary spending back to this number of FY22, you know, I, it's fine to talk about it, but I think when the votes are actually uh, counted and, you know, we see where this all goes, it's going to take time. It's probably going to be a drama that plays out until next year. I'm skeptical that you're going to see that kind of cut uh, materialize. I'm highly skeptical, quite, quite frankly. Um, do you think uh, that we live with year-long continuing uh, resolutions uh, in that case? Um, and how do you handicap ending up, whether we like it or not, with another Budget Control Act uh, scenario? Well, again, I kind of go back to, you know, 2011 is different than 2023 or 2024. And again, it gets back to this geopolitical backdrop. Um, right. I think, look, I'm not going to rule out a full year CR. And frankly, if you include a uh, Ukraine supplemental spending, <clears throat> that may not be such a bad deal for uh, defense. Um, the critical part of this is obviously going to be anomalies and what what's permitted, what flexibility is given to the Department of Defense <clears throat> to move funding around or to, you know, do away with some of the, the stipulations that typically accompany a continuing resolution. I think, you know, the bottom line, I really wasn't expecting much <clears throat> of a change um, you know, if the administration submits the, the administration budget, it's not going to see the type of increase you saw in FY23, for example. Um, but, you know, I think the key will really come down to if you are going to get into that full year CR, then the questions you have to be asking are, well, what kind of anomalies are going to be uh, allowed by the Department of Defense? But again, I, I just think you know, focusing on this gang of 20 um, that really was the, the focal point of all the drama around the speaker election, you know, when you start peeling back the bipartisan support you've seen for defense in the National Defense Authorization Act and the omnibus appropriations bills, um, and just the hard reality of, of representatives and senators going back to their constituents and trying to defend what these cuts would actually mean if, in fact, they were going to be implemented. Um, I'm, I'm just, I think it's easy for Washington, D.C. in general to give. It's very difficult for Washington, D.C. to take away. Um, what do you think 
the impact over the coming year, uh, right? I mean, looking at uh, where we are in the NDAA, where we are in the appropriations process, um, which is, um, um, you know, still uh, somewhat chaotic uh, and, and may actually stay th that way for a prolonged period of time. What's your estimate on the impact uh, on the defense industrial base? Uh, 2022 was a pretty good year uh, for the industry. Um, what do you see, you know, what do you forecast for the coming 12 months? Well, I think you're still going to see differentiation um, between companies that, uh, you know, are able to hire people that have, have thought through and worked through their supply issues. Um, you know, I, I wrote about it over the holiday because I think it was important as an analogy, and that was uh, Southwest Airlines, the operational meltdown that they experienced, which was really unique among the airline industry. I just think it was another lesson that reinforces there's such a thing as being too efficient and too mindful of margins and, and operating cash flow and costs. And ultimately, you know, when companies go too far in that direction, they can ultimately destroy more value uh, than they actually intend to create by those types of, of practices. So in the defense sector, Vago, I think you're going to see, you know, unemployment rate, even though you're seeing some pretty big layoffs in, in the tech world, the, the national unemployment rate is still fairly low. Um, even if it gets back to 4%, you know, that's kind of where we were prior to the pandemic. And there were even skill shortages then. So I think, you're going to see more differentiation among contractors who can actually deliver on their backlog and um, and and their new contract awards and and those that probably are going to struggle. Um, I think you know there are some the, the international market still looks relatively healthy, and obviously there are some campaigns or, or contract decisions are going to be decided that could be catalytic catalytic to individual companies. But, you know, big picture from the defense industrial base, it's it's still going to be tight. And I think um, labor, skilled labor, not just engineers, but, you know, people who get their fingernails dirty or wear steel-toed boots, that's still going to be an issue for this sector. And um, and I think, uh, you know, there, there's no magic solution out there. It's, it's just going to take a lot of hard work on industry's part. And, and again, this may get back to the discretionary part of the defense budget. You know, when you start talking about workforce development, education, training, <clears throat> great. You know, one thing I think we certainly saw last year was more recognition that defense is not just resting all on the U.S. defense budget. It is kind of a whole of society approach. You know, you need a good educated workforce. You need, you need, you know, an environment where capital investment can be encouraged in this sector. Um, so you need, you need to address supply chain issues, um, the over-reliance on, on offshore uh, suppliers for critical technologies, I think, that came out loud and clear, certainly in recent years, that's going to be a continuing theme going forward. So I would hope, you know, with all the, the, the drama around non-defense discretionary cuts that's being waved around right now, that those factors also get considered in what that all means for national security. Almost every case, uh, we are dealing with uh, capacity uh, limitations. And folks uh, are uh, talking about moving away from, from just-in-time 
uh, to just in case uh, in terms of uh, supply chains. That's not just on the defense side of things. That's now beginning to spread, obviously, uh, as the decoupling uh, between the United States and China uh, continues uh, is, is um, something that's likely to accelerate. And we had the CHIPS uh, Act, uh, which was quite a lot of money um, as also the infrastructure measure, right? I mean, we've, we've been focusing a little bit more uh, than we have in quite a long time in technical training and technical education. Do you expect the capacity needle to move? And if so, what are the additional things that have to happen, right? You're a historian. What are some of the other, you know, after Sputnik, we did a massive drive, right, to generate uh, greater engineering skills that help put us on the moon yeah. Uh, yeah. and hold us in good stead for decades. What are some of the other things that have to happen, do you think, from a, right? Because if you talk to the Navy, you talk to the Air Force, you talk to industry, it's all about talent limitations, really. Right, right. And, and Vago, you know, I mean, it's that's going to be interesting. I'll be at Surface Navy Association, too. I think it's going to be really interesting, you know, to see what's said about uh, the CNO's comment, CNO Admiral Gilday, when he spoke at Reagan National Defense Forum last December and basically said, you know, capacity's kind of maxed out. And you kind of scratch your head and go, well, how could that possibly be given the ship construction plan the Navy's laid down over the next couple of years? Look, it's a combination of, of it's a whole range of things. Um, and I think it's important not just to dwell on the largest contractors, Huntington Ingalls or General Dynamics in the case of shipbuilding. But, you know, it's those third and fourth tier suppliers that really don't get a lot of attention. That's probably where a lot of the work has to be done. And it's it's a combination of workforce. It's also a, 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 a an investment factor. Um, you know, I still hear a lot of anecdotal evidence about companies that smaller companies that just they're not synced up <clears throat> to the digital design engineering tools that the larger primes are deploying. And so it's not just workforce development, it's investment, um, it is technology training and skills. This isn't all a federal problem. A lot of states have been tackling this, frankly, with some pretty creative um, approaches, but it's going to take time. And we don't have a lot of the slack in the economy. You go back to the uh, you know 1930s, for example, or even even you know the Korean War when you know there was a, a sudden shift in demand signals, but the unemployment rate was a lot higher. You had a lot of excess capacity lying around the United States um, that could be redeployed to national security ends. Um, it's a different environment right now, but I, I just I want to keep hammering on that point that if you think you can cut non-defense discretionary spending and not have an impact on national security, you you need your head screwed back on. Well, uh, that's. Uh, th this isn't the first time uh, that Washington can be uh, accused of not having its head screwed on uh, properly. Um, what do you think is going to be the most tangible impact on Ukraine uh, aid? Um, you know, we uh, heard uh, from Michael uh, on yesterday's program, and he echoed this a little bit on Friday's program, how, um, you know, if the United States does less, our allies and partners will have to do more. And we heard from Jim Townsend on Friday that, uh, this is going to accelerate Europe's drive for a degree of autonomy, the kind of um, yeah. spectacle uh, that we saw surrounding uh, the speaker and concerns that however normal things were over the last two years uh, in, you know, starting today and beyond, it could be crazier, uh, dep especially depending on who's sitting in the White House. Yeah. Um, what's what's your sense on 
Ukraine, how that plays out and and how it in turn and, and want to get your thoughts also on Russia. Right. I mean, that's sort of an elephant that's in uh, the room, the 2022 elephant that will continue to be the uh, the Ukraine war being the, the the challenge. How do you see this interconnected whole budgetarily in the United States, the impact abroad and then how that feeds to deterring, shaping, whether it's the Russians or the Chinese, because I think it's a problematic signal. to be Well, sent. again, I think there is bipartisan support for continuing aid to Ukraine. I, I want to kind of put in isolation the gang of 20 in the House. And, it, and clearly there are some senators who feel this way, too, that, you know, why are we throwing all this money at Ukraine? Um, it's going to be controversial, obviously, but is it going to stop it? It's in, you know, dead. Um, I'm skeptical of that. And I'm skeptical because I think people realize, you know, what's potentially at stake if somehow Russia does turn the tide and defeats Ukraine, um, you know, more broadly, how that then translates into what could happen in Indo-Pacific and how China might see Taiwan, for example. So, these linkages, you know, that, that people tend to compartmentalize this, this all without making these broader linkages about. So if if the U.S. cuts off aid to Ukraine, well, wouldn't that create a much more uh, a severe security issue uh, or policy vis-a-vis -vis China? And, and again, I, I think those linkages have to be made. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you've already seen a distancing both of Europe and Japan to a degree from the United States, at least from the defense industrial base. <clears throat> you know, there's been this initial surge in orders, you know, from countries like Poland or Germany of U.S. kit because they've had to do it. They've let their own defense industrial bases languish. But, you know, the, the, um, the agreement between Japan, Italy and the U.K. on uh, whatever we're now calling the Tempest program, but I think that's a pretty important break from uh, Japan that historically had relied and had very close ties with U.S. industry and any new aircraft development program. Um, the French you know, and the Germans seem like they're pushing ahead on their new combat aircraft plan. And I think it's just natural as these countries spend more money on defense, they're going to look to build their own defense industry. And if you overlay that, with a concern about, well, where could the U.S. be in 2024, 26, or 28? I think it's only natural that they're going to look to, to build their own resilience and stability and not just hope that the U.S. is going to be around there when they might need them uh, if things worsen. Um, do you, how do you see the war playing out? Um, you know, Putin getting increasingly frustrated reports uh, that he uh, has fired his top general, although not fully confirmed yet. Um, more more open uh, criticism uh, of uh, Putin, uh, including from the chief of the Wagner uh, group, which is a pretty bold uh, thing uh, to be doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, criticisms, uh, Deripaska's criticisms, not just of, of Putin, but also others in the military uh, establishment, um, you know, including Shoigu, uh, the defense minister, you know, with, with the Ukrainians saying, look, we're holding together. We're getting more capability, whether it's AMX-10s, whether it's martyrs, whether it's Bradley fighting vehicles. Uh, obviously, the, the Ukrainians are going to need more than that, but they're setting their sights on an offensive. Uh, walk yeah. us through how this plays out over the coming 12 months, do you think? Well, I mean, look, it, it plays itself out kind of the way you've set it up, which is 
and this is the way I've felt since April, uh, you know, it was kind of in a broad strategic stalemate. Yeah, the Ukrainians made some gains in in Kharkiv and that uh, all blast. <clears throat> the Kyrgyzstan offensive was a, a positive Ukraine, but still kind of a grinding battle in a lot of ways. Um, I think now you really are at a race to re-equip and retrain and, and build out. And I, I, I still think the Russians, until I see evidence that the Russians have corrected some very foundational weaknesses in their military. This gets down to things like absence of NCOs, um, really a pretty arcane and obsolete logistics system, high reliance on railroads. Um, you know, they, they still, they don't have the real, real key strategic advantage that Ukraine has, which is the overhead intelligence assets that the US and Europe are providing to Ukraine which has obviously helped them with targeting. So I think broadly, you know, the, the things that I'm watching most keenly are, okay, you know, kind of the nose of the camel is under the tent with this announcement of um, the light tanks, if that's what we're going to call them, that the French have provided and Martyrs and Bradleys. Um, you know, you're moving much closer to what the Ukraine military has said they need. Um, let's get through the weather. Um, you know, it's January. It's fairly mild uh, in, in Europe, although, you know, very cold in Russia right now. <clears throat> We're going to get back into that mud season again in March and April. Then I think, you know, summer offensive to me is it's, it's quite possible. Um, and again, I, I just haven't seen, you know, kind of the big turnaround in Russia that would lead me to believe that even though they're throwing a lot more bodies at this, that they're going to be any more effective or really turn the corner in how they're performing in the war. So I think there's still a, a reasonable uh, outcome here where Ukraine could make some very significant military gains um, in, in 2023. And then we really have to see, you know, can, can, are, what, what will the Russians do? You know, if they're, if they're facing another 15, 20,000 KIA and, uh, you know, multiples in, in wounded or missing in action, you know, that's, that's, I think, when you start worrying about the, uh, the foundations of, of Putin regimes, um, Putin's regime, I do think it's interesting as the Atlantic Council today released a kind of, it was a survey of, of uh, international affairs securities experts. And, you know, the, the vast majority predicted that within 10 years, Russia is going to be a failed state. Um, that in and of its own right has some pretty interesting uh, military security ramifications, if that comes true. So that's kind of the way I see it, Fago. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to China. Uh, and then I want to uh, spend some time um, asking you about what are some of the other things that we need to be focused on or, you know, because, you know, folks have a tendency sometimes of, uh, you know, just looking at the obvious as opposed to the non-obvious, which is something you're very good at. You know, China uh, reverse track on COVID in part because there were demonstrations. Everything is about the preservation of the party. And the party thinks that 1.4 million dead in the course of the Lunar New Year uh, is survivable and they'll get back onto a, a growth uh, track uh, after that. Um, you know, and, and that they may not necessarily be interested in taking Taiwan over uh, by force through an invasion, for example, but through a blockade, coercion, uh, and a whole bunch of other um, ways. What's, how, how is it we need to be looking at China uh, over uh, the coming um, year? Well, 
you know, I'll, I'll get back to the other linkage, which is how is China going to look at Russia? And, you know, that it has been a fairly hands-off um, relationship, at least vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Ukraine. You know, how does China see if, if Russia really looks like it's starting to fail badly in Ukraine and there's a risk of instability in Russia? I mean, that, that could be a really very significant change in, in Chinese security policy if they have to worry about <clears throat> stability in Central Asia or in Russia itself. Um, and, you know, I don't think they're going to welcome the prospect of the U.S., being freed up from any uh, security commitments in in Europe, uh, and and bringing you know their full weight to bear. I think the the Japanese uh, defense spending increase, you know, if they deliver on that, that's another pretty profound change for China. So, um, you know, you asked me about the non the the the, the non. Um, appreciated ones. I don't know, you know, from time to time, you know, ask me two years ago, I thought Venezuela is going to be a much bigger security issue. That really didn't happen. Um, Brazil, you know, what we just saw over the weekend, kind of their own um, January 6th uh, was, was a pretty interesting development. You know, now does that lead to, you know, a further degradation in security in Latin America? I can't tell you, but um I would watch it. Uh, we were just at the uh, Bank of America, uh, Merrill Lynch uh, annual defense and aerospace conference that we're partnered on. Uh, and, you know, th there's always a discussion of sort of the black swan and how some were uh, very, uh, you know, dismissive of, of the notion that you could actually, you know, sort of meaningfully predict that which you, you don't know, right? All you can do is, you know, the stuff that's uh, concrete and, and ahead of you. And on most of those, we, we see them, uh, coming, whether they're a pandemic or something else. The question is more how it is we respond to it. We knew China's, you know, uh, the locomotive that's going to run over us. Um, and, and yet we still were a little bit slow to react uh, to it. So, so yeah, and, uh, and I would say, you know, I think if you look at some of the broader conditions um, that, that lead to black swans, you know, is there a, a emerging market debt crisis? Um, you know, do central banks keep raising rates and the dollar strengthens further? You know, is is food inflation or energy prices are going to reverse and soar again? You know, I mean, there so these underlying <clears throat> dynamics are still there, but I can't point you to the the exact individual catalysts that you know. I could argue the the new coalition government in Israel and some of the policies that they may push forward. <clears throat> you know, there could be another crisis in the Middle East over some of this stuff, uh, particularly in Israel in and of itself. So um, there there are things there, but there's nothing. And maybe that goes back to your comment. You know, you kind of look at the. You just have to have your radar on for these at all times. Um, just uh, really quickly before we go uh, to look at the week ahead uh, and what you're expecting uh, to hear at SNA or what you want to hear for, uh, at SNA, uh, really quick, what do you think the economic outlook this year is going to be, right? I mean, a lot of debate about whether hard landing, soft landing, uh, inflation tapering, jobs numbers slightly lower, but you know, still pretty strong. What's your sense on, on where we end up this year economically and what people should be bearing in mind? Um, I, I think the Sharp. I mean, statistically, we can have a recession, but I don't think people are necessarily going to notice it. Uh, you know, you're already seeing pretty big layoffs in in uh, the tech world. You know, 
San Francisco rents are probably going to come way down. <clears throat> you know, that kind of works in its own little cycle. Maybe then that's not good if you're a landlord in the Bay Area. But, um, you know, the rest of the country, I think, is still doing okay. Um, and, and we're kind of back to, you know, central bankers and where they're going to go. Is <clears throat> the Fed going to go further? You know, do they pause, which is probably the perennial hope of markets. I, I don't have a personal view on that, Vago. It just doesn't feel like we're ripe, you know, for a, the kind of blow up that happened in 2008, 2009 with the, you know, the, the financial crisis that emerged that emerged then. So I'm a little bit more, more, I'd say, you know, I won't say sanguine, that's probably the wrong word to use in this, but I, I, I don't have reason to believe that, you know, the bottom is about to fall out of the economy. Um, we'll see. Um, really quick, uh, look at the week ahead. Uh, what are the important things that folks should be paying attention to? And what are you looking forward to here uh, at uh, SNA? And I should also make a brief programming note. Our cyber report will go tomorrow, uh, you know, and, and then uh, our uh, interview with Chris Kastner and then Admiral uh, Galinas and uh, Brian Clark. And then we get to the Washington Roundtable. But go ahead. Um, well, I'll be, you know, this afternoon, the CSIS is doing an event. I guess they've been working with a couple of the other think tanks on war gaming, a China-Taiwan conflict. So I think that'll be interesting. There's a report that I guess gets released with that. And um, I will also be at Surface Navy Association. I know Chatham House is doing something on global conflicts. And RUSI has an event on Western technology and Russian and Iranian kit, a military kit that's going to be important as well, too. Aaron, thanks very much. Uh, very much looking forward to seeing you at SNA uh, live and in person for uh, 23 uh, and look forward to having you back on again uh, next week. Thanks so very much and bon voyage. Thank you, Vago. Cheers.